0: On this first Advent Sunday of 1995, I direct your attention to the book of Esther, of all places, right there at the end of the histories of the Old Testament, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, and to the ninth chapter, right near the end of the book, Chapter 10 hardly being another chapter, but really just the concluding paragraph. We'll read Esther chapter 9 from verse 18 to verse 28. The last section from 29 to the to the end really repeats what has been said before, so we'll just read from 18 to 28. Now the history that the book of Esther reports is now all finished. The great... Uh, deliverance that God had wrought for his people um, from the plot of the wicked Haman, a courtier of the Persian king, and the remarkable way in which that deliverance was enacted. It's a tremendous, tremendous story, and um, it's very much worth reading over and over again. Today, even today, uh, when Purim is celebrated amongst the Jews, the book of Esther is read, and Traditionally, the congregation uh, shouts and boos whenever Haman's name is mentioned, and uh, we'll we'll not do that this morning. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The proclamation had already been issued, but it took longer to get to the rural uh, communities, and so they were a little late in their first celebration of this feast to commemorate this deliverance. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th day of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. The suggestion is that you, you are at least looking forward in that month of Adar to the celebration of Purim. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, The Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the poor, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. Remember the other Sunday evening, the I am is the plural masculine ending for Hebrew nouns. You have one poor, two poorim. Um, but when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows, the very gallows he had uh, erected upon which to hang Mordecai, you remember. Therefore, these days were called Purim, from the word Poor. Lot. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what had uh, they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of them die out among their descendants. Heavenly Father, instruct us from this ancient word, history such as it is true, the truest history. And make us, O God, to understand what it means for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you will recognize this text and the subject that goes with it. Two years ago, also on the first day of Advent, first Sunday of Advent, I preached on the same text with the same subject. But since then, I've had still further occasion to reflect on the celebration of Christmas and Easter and other Christian holidays, and my thinking has continued to develop as I've read the works of both those who are critics and those who are supporters or advocates of the church's celebration of these holidays, Easter, Christmas, especially Christmas, because it is the greatest of these Christian holidays, the one to which Christians pay the most attention. As Advent begins, I want us to think about its celebration. In particular, I want us to celebrate it with thoughtfulness and with intention as a great Christian holiday. And to do that, we need a theology of Christmas. Now, I don't mean a theology of the incarnation of God the Son or a theology of the virgin birth. I'm speaking of a theology of the celebration of Christmas as a feast as a holiday, as a season of the year, with all of its music and its decoration, its gift-giving, its happy associations in almost every family circle. And I want, in developing that theology, also to think with you about the way in which the Bible teaches us our way of life, not only with regard to feasts and celebrations, but with regard to everything else as well. As i said, I have been thinking about this and have come to feel increasingly, more definitely than I did two years ago, that the celebration of Christmas is not simply allowed, it's not simply all right, acceptable, permissible, but that it is indeed biblical and necessary. But you're aware, perhaps, that many in our tradition through the centuries have not thought so. Puritans in general, Scottish Presbyterians uh, in the main and others, some of our own men still today, feel very strongly that in the celebration of Advent and Christmas, the church is simply capitulating to the world. They argue that in celebrating this popular holiday, Christians are betraying the Lord with a kiss, justifying their delight in the celebration of what is effectively a pagan holiday by overlaying the celebration with a thin veneer of Christian associations. They love not the Lord in Christmas, our friends argue. We love not the Lord in Christmas. We love Christmas, and we use the Lord to justify and to excuse that love. One of the young men who has gone from us into the ministry has an elder who feels strongly that the modern celebration of Christmas is not only not Christian, it is anti-Christian. He will not have a Christmas tree in his house because he thinks it a pagan symbol, And this man is not alone. Many thoughtful Christians share his view of the matter. And their argument is not to be sniffed at. It has substance, and it requires a careful response. The argument against the Christian celebration of Christmas comes generally in two parts. First, it's pointed out that the Bible nowhere commands Christians to celebrate Christmas. Nowhere even mentions Christmas or any such celebration that might have gone by another name. So they argue Christmas is a human invention and therefore does not belong to the worship of God. For we in the Reformed Church believe, and we do believe this in this church, that only that is to be done in the worship of Almighty God that has the positive sanction of Holy Scripture. As a church, we accept the truth of that position. God alone can teach us how he is to be worshipped. It is an act of high presumption to figure this out for ourselves and to go our own way. To invent our own approach to worshipping God is as much a violation of the second commandment as it would be to bow down to an idol. And the Bible teaches that clearly enough, emphatically enough, often enough. There should be no mistake about it. And it is true. The Bible never mentions Christmas. So how then can we justify its celebration as part of our worship of God? How can we speak of Advent Sundays and Christmas Sundays? How can we justify the particular selection of hymns and choral music that we make at this time of year? How can we claim that what we are doing in giving and receiving gifts, in decorating Christmas trees in our living rooms, in lighting our homes, has any connection whatsoever with the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ? How can we claim that any of this pleases God? As a matter of fact, I am sure we are right to do these things, and that in fact, the scripture adds its own imprimatur to our Christmas celebration. I'll say it plainly I believe Christmas is a biblical obligation. Its manner of celebration is a matter of personal taste, perhaps. That is not a matter of commandment, but that it should be celebrated is, in my judgment, the clearest teaching of the Bible. For you see, while the Bible does not mention Christmas or Easter by name, it says very little about the worship of the church in the New Epoch, as a matter of fact, in the New Testament. The Bible does teach us to remember and to celebrate with great feasts the central, the pivotal events in the history of our salvation as the people of God. Some of our friends... ...that the Bible would have explicitly to command us to celebrate Christmas for us to have the right to do so and to call it in any respect the worship of God. Now, don't be too quick to dismiss these folk. At least they're taking the Bible seriously as the rule of our worship. Far too Christians, few too, far too few Christians today are doing that, and the result has been disaster for Christian worship. But here is their mistake, I believe. The scripture directs us in our worship in many other ways than by specific commandments to do this or not to do that. No commandment, for example, can be found that a Sabbath worship service is to include a sermon or even, interestingly, the singing of hymns. But by many illustrations and by the clear implication of much other teaching in many places, we absolutely rightly conclude that both sermon and song belong to the Sabbath worship of the Christian church. There is no command anywhere to include women and children in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. The only Lord's Supper we have described to us anywhere in the pages of the New Testament included 12 men around a table. And never anywhere are we told that that is not the rule for our celebration as well. But we are, of course, completely correct in our assumption that the Scripture, by many other teachings directs us to include the entire membership of the church in that worship. Well, so it is with feasts and holidays in commemoration of the great moments in the history of our salvation. This is why I chose once again to read Esther 9, 18 to 28. It is, I judge, the locus classicus for this question of feasts and holidays, the text that more than any other text in all of the Bible should direct our thinking concerning the celebration of Christmas or Easter or any other Christian holiday we may be thinking of. And the reason for that is this. God did not directly appoint the celebration of Purim. Now Passover and Pentecost and Tabernacles were also feasts of Israel's annual calendar of worship, but God himself had appointed and directed Israel to observe those holidays. But the Feast of Purim, the celebration and commemoration of God's deliverance of his people in Persia from a threat to their very existence, was the creation of the church itself, as we read pointedly in verses 18 and 27 and 31. There was nothing about this feast in the law of Moses. The Jews in Jerusalem and Judea would not even have known about it until some time later. No book of Holy Scripture commands its celebration. And yet in the Bible, it is clearly regarded as a natural, a good, even a wonderful thing that an annual feast should have been appointed to commemorate this deliverance. And as we read in verse 27, this new feast became a religious obligation of the Jews by the dictate of the church. It was not in the law, but it was to be observed. What is more, perhaps even more important for our argument this morning, another such feast was instituted for the Jews between the time of Queen Esther and of the Lord Jesus and his life in the world. As you may remember, during the middle of the 2nd century B.C., the temple in Jerusalem was profaned by a king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes who had conquered Judea. As a result of the heroic resistance of a band of guerrilla fighters known as the Maccabees, finally Jerusalem was liberated and the temple was purified and rededicated. An annual feast was appointed to commemorate that God-given deliverance as well. It was called the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Lights, and it is the Jewish holiday we know today as Hanukkah, which is a Hebrew word meaning dedication. This, too, was a feast with no standing in the law of Moses. The church created it in commemoration of what God had done for her. But, and here is the most important point, our Savior himself observed this feast as we read in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 22. No doubt he also observed Purim, and did so as a boy with the same childhood glee and anticipation with which our children look forward to Christmas today. Now, the simple logic of the Scripture in all of this is this. If the Exodus from Egypt was remembered annually with a great feast, indeed, with two great feasts, God enshrining the connection between his great deliverances of his people and feasts to celebrate those deliverances in his own law. And if the deliverance of the Jews in Persia was celebrated annually with a great holiday, and if the victory God gave the Maccabees was commemorated each year with a feast, which the Lord Jesus himself observed... How much more should the people of God, how much more inevitable is it that the people of God should celebrate and commemorate the greatest event in the history of the world? The event that rescued all of the people of God in all places and all times from eternal death. It would be untrue. It would be unfaithful to the pattern which Holy Scripture has established for us not to celebrate annually the incarnation of the Son of God. For what is perfectly clear is that the Bible never tells us to stop doing what God's people were always doing in the old epoch, namely remembering the great events of their salvation with feasts and holidays. The commandment enshrined in all of this biblical teaching is that God's people should remember the history of salvation with feasts and celebrations. Second, the, criti- the critics of the church's celebration of Christmas argue that the accoutrement, the accompaniments of Christmas, are not Christian at all, but are pagan in their origin. The 25th of December was originally a Roman pagan holiday in S- In worship of the sun, Christmas trees, lights, Santa Claus, and so on, have no more to do with the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ than the Easter bunny has to do with the resurrection of the Son of God. And by accepting these things, so it is argued, we inject paganism into our worship of the Lord Jesus, and we corrupt it. Well, that is a caution worth hearing. And we would all be better off if we got rid of Santa Claus and returned to St. Nicholas, the early Christian saint and martyr known for his love of children and generosity to children. The Feast of Tabernacles in the period of the Judges and afterwards became the most popular feast of the Israelite year because it fell at the same time as the great Canaanite New Year's festival. Both were fixed at the time of the autumn harvest of summer fruit, Many of the pagan elements of the Canaanite feast found their way into the Israelite uh, worship of tabernacles and corrupted it. So it's not an empty concern that Christian opposers of Christmas raise in pointing out the pagan origin of Christmas customs. Who today would argue that American consumerism does not pose a threat to the righteousness of our gift giving at Christmas time? and particularly as an act of Christian worship. It should be said, however, as an aside, that some of the claims made for the pagan origin of various Christmas customs are by no means proven. Perhaps the colors red and green uh, come from ancient magic and fertility cults, but um, perhaps not. Um, They may come from holly and other things like that. Perhaps Christmas trees were originally druid idols, but maybe they weren't. Nobody knows for sure. In any case, the origin of the Christian celebration of Christmas is quite uncertain, both as to date and to circumstances, and even the reason why it was fixed on December 25th is not really known for sure. But it should be said directly that give the opponents of Christian Christmas everything they ask it is still not true that the presence of pagan elements in a Christian celebration does not necessarily corrupt that celebration or render it unacceptable for Christians. If Christmas were placed on purpose on the 25th of December to replace the pagan festival to the sun, how is that different from the Lord placing tabernacles, which after all was not a New Year's idea, but was a commemoration of God's protection and provision for his people during the days of their wilderness wanderings. How is it different from God placing tabernacles at the time of paganism's New Year's festival? And is it not interesting that tabernacles made much of the enjoyment of food harvested from the vines and the trees, just as the pagans had done at their festival for years before? Think of how many other ways God accommodated his worship already existing customs, and by so doing, sanctified and purified those customs by taking them up into a Christian celebration and making them of Christian use. The architecture of Solomon's temple was taken in most respects from the standard architecture of temples in the ancient Near East. Many of the rites and ceremonies that God appointed for the worship of his name by his people already existed in pagan forms but were changed to be sanctified for holy use. It would certainly be difficult to prove that pretty trees and lights and ornaments cannot be sanctified to Christian use. Beauty and good cheer of all kinds are a feature of all the great feasts of the Bible. Giving gifts had no particular connection with the history of Esther and Mordecai. Read the story. There's nothing about giving gifts in that that history, but it was included in the custom of Purim, as a feast as a means of increasing everyone's pleasure it is one of the reasons we love god that he gives gifts to men as the scripture says everybody loves to give and receive gifts it is an entirely christian instinct to include the giving of our the giving and receiving of gifts as part of the celebration of the birth of the lord jesus christ you find it in purim you find it in the gifts given to the newborn king by the Magi from the East. You find it in St. Nicholas, who gave gifts to children. To claim that pagan elements incorporated in Christian worship invalidate that worship is an argument that tells against biblical feasts, as surely as it does against Christmas in our celebration of it today. What is more, it seems to suggest that pagans have a greater right to beautiful and charming things than Christians do, who are the sons and daughters of, Of the one who made them. So, a justification for the celebration of Advent and Christmas as a biblical feast and as a part of that pattern laid down in Holy Scripture in many ways, both those that are appointed in the law of God and those which the church herself creates to remember, to commemorate, to celebrate God's great works for our salvation with feasts and holidays. But I want to conclude with the second half of a theology of the celebration of Christmas, namely its intentions, its benefits, its ends. We said that it was a commemoration and a celebration of what God has done, but to what end do we commemorate or celebrate that history? Let me just say two things, many more things I'm sure could be mentioned. Let me say two. First, we should say that feasts such as Christmas and Easter, according to the scripture, are to bear witness to ourselves and to the world of the historical events that are our salvation. This is certainly the point of Purim here. Our faith is a faith based on events in history. These things happened when Xerxes was the king of Persia. We know all about Xerxes, we know about his court. We know about the way in which proclamations were addressed. This actually happened. It happened just this way. No wonder there was a feast. Real people, real events on real days, just like these. If you'd had a camera, you could have captured it in film. And so it was for the Lord Jesus Christ, his birth. His sinless life, His death, His resurrection. It is essential that this truth, this historical veracity and reality be the foundation of our faith and never be lost. And the fact of the matter is it is always being lost. People, including people who think themselves the friends of the Christian faith are forever taking a history and turning it into an idea. And as soon as Christianity becomes simply another religious idea, it becomes the same as every other religion and has no more virtue or power than they. We believe in things that have happened in the world, really happened on days just like this. So Passover remembered something that had really happened and tabernacles, 40 years that had really happened. Purim, dedication. The feasts of the Christian calendar are demonstrations of the historicity of our faith. We celebrate the 4th of July as Americans because of something that happened on that day in 1776. We celebrate Christmas because God the Son was born of a virgin and Easter because he rose from the dead. It is the great witness of the Christian faith to the world That had not Jesus been born of a virgin long ago Bethlehem, there would be no such celebration as Christmas, and even the unbelieving world would lose the happiest time of its year. You see, nothing can create something like Christmas. Stop and think about it. What is the origin of the power that Christmas has over our lives Nothing can create something like Christmas except extraordinary events in the world. The 4th of July is child's play compared to the 25th of December. And Labor Day and Memorial Day can't be mentioned in the same breath. These holidays celebrate mere ideas and not particularly glorious ideas either. Christmas remembers the most extraordinary event in the history of the world. Or as Dorothy Sayers put it, it remembers... The only thing that has ever really happened. Auguste Comte, the father of modern humanism, once expressed the hope that as the power of the Christian faith waned in the world, humanist feasts would appear to replace the old religious ones, such as Christmas and Easter. G.K. Chesterton professed mock disappointment that none such feasts were forthcoming. He was always glad for another holiday, he said. He'd be happy to light a fire on Charles Darwin Day or hang up his stocking on the eve of Victor Hugo's birthday or trim a tree to celebrate Human Potential Day. But there's no thrill in those things. No mall would be able to make any money getting people to celebrate Human Potential Day. There's real history beneath Christmas. Christmas. And even amongst those who deny that fact, their celebration of Christmas is due to the echo of that truth that they still hear on the outskirts of their soul. Let them know it. Let the world know it. That this feast, which they cannot help but borrow, because it is so much better and greater and grander than anything they could ever come up with, exists at all because of events that it was designed to commemorate. Second, such a feast as Christmas is an engine of joy in the Christian life. This is obviously the sense of this narrative that we have read about Purim, full of presents and all the things that make us happy. It's the kind of thing you would anticipate for the month before, before you finally got there. The Lord wants his people to be happy. He gave them a pattern of feasts to help them to be happy, for they have a great reason to be happy, even in a sin-sick, sorrowing world like ours. It's inappropriate. It's not fitting that Christians should not rise above the sorrows of life for some especially grand fun and gaiety, given what God has done for them and promised to them. It's also surpassingly wonderful both the salvation and the Savior who has given it to us. No wonder there should be feasts in our faith. Daniel Baker, the great preacher of the South, once wrote his son, See to it, my son, that you enjoy religion and that you enjoy it every day. But the Lord has shown us in his word, in this pattern of feasts and holidays, that as important as it is to enjoy your faith every day, The best way to do that includes enjoying it especially, even more, on some days of the year. That was the way it was from the beginning. And I'm sure of this. The Lord is saying to us this Advent season, as surely as he said to the Jews in Nehemiah's day, when Nehemiah called on them to celebrate the feast appointed for that day. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. And send some to those who have nothing prepared. This time is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy in real things, happy things, beautiful things, altogether human things. Because such is our faith, and such is our Heavenly Father's love, and such is the salvation in Jesus Christ. Here's our theology of Advent and Christmas. It is an obedience to a pattern established in Holy Scripture. It takes up even things that have pagan use and sanctifies them for our celebration of God's great gift to us. And it serves the purpose of rendering witness to the historicity of our faith, the facticity of the events upon which that faith is built. And it increases our joy which is always something God wants for us. But it's no use having a theology if it is not practiced. So you practice it. This Christmas season, make it both your witness and your joy. Children and mothers and especially fathers, you see to it. And the joy of the Lord will be your strength as well. Amen.